actor and playwright Jason E. Carmichael comes on the podcast today to chat about August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle. We get into the burning forest that is scene writing, and he answers the age-old question that has plagued racist Hollywood producers for centuries, exactly which tattoos are gang enough. More pressingly, we discuss balancing our art against the pressures of commerce, and he reveals the best acting advice he ever got. Pro tip, it works for writing effective scenes in any genre. Come into the scene at the last possible moment, get out of the scene at the first possible moment. The interview was so chock full with delicious insider tidbits Stay for the whole podcast to hear some bonus material about James Earl Jones and Arsenio Hall. Also, a moment to beg and plead with our loyal listeners. We are so thankful for you, our devoted followers. We know who you are. You are legion. We can snoop you on our podcast analytics. Unfortunately, many of you haven't gone over to ye old iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Help us help you. We'd love to reach more listeners, which means we need to climb the charts on the iTunes page. Rate, review, subscribe, would you? They've experienced this August Wilson play, and it's so real. And so now we understand. And so I think... I went to one show. Yeah, I get you. I I know the black experience. I understand. (laughs) I love August Wilson. I've got got black friends. You know, this is that, that mentality. I can't believe I'm living in a world where James Earl Jones has to ask Eddie Murphy for anything. You know, you're James Earl Jones. This is Eddie Murphy. <laughs> on Arsenio Hall, no right. less, right? But, uh, but I understand it because it took all those years for it to happen. People can't change the world. They can just change people. And people, together can make a change and I think that's what you in the theater and that's what it's all about is that what is it that I'm trying to communicate I'm Jessica Cole I'm Fulu I'm Kate Martin Williams and when I grow up I want to be just like Terry Gross and this is effing Shakespeare by writers for writers on today's show you will only hear the voices of host Kate Martin-Williams and Fulu and our guest Jason E. Carmichael. Unfortunately, our co-host Jessica won't be with us today. Uh, Our love and support go to her and her family, and uh, we look forward to getting the group back together, getting the band back together in a couple weeks. For now, let's uh, start the show. Jason E. Carmichael is an actor and playwright, which is to say his job is telling stories. At one time or another, he has performed in two plays of the August Wilson cycle, including a standout role as the boundaryless Troy in Fences. After several years in Los Angeles working in stage, television, and film, he came to Houston and has enjoyed a successful career on the stage, including garnering a Best Supporting Actor nomination in the Houston Theater Awards for his role as Gabriel in Fences and the Georgie Award for Best Actor for his performance in The Meeting. He just wrapped up August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in the role of Slow Drag, one member of a powerhouse cast at Ensemble Theater. Wesley Morris, theater critic at the New York Times, said a good August Wilson actor will pull you through the language so that it all seems utterly natural. 
everything about witnessing Carmichael on stage is utterly natural. To see him act is, in a way, to unsee him. He is transformed. Likewise, to read a Carmichael play is to have the world around you disappear, to be transported by language, by characters' connections to each other, to forget any world but the world on the page or the world on the stage. We look forward to discussing the how of both of these art forms with today's guest. Jason Carmichael, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about your, your early years. When did you first know you were going to be an actor? It was early. I mean, I would say elementary school. Mm-hmm. And, and writing at the same time, they kind of came together for me. It was always telling stories. And so I was doing uh, commercials and Shakespeare in the fifth grade. And we used to tour around the city. I went to a performing arts elementary school. So we were kind of in the paper, you know, it was these kids doing Shakespeare and... Fifth grader. Fifth grade. Yeah, we, well, I had a professor. <laughs> were you the one fifth grader or this was no, a cast no. of fifth graders? No, no, it was a cast of fifth graders. And I had a professor, Philip Stout, who was uh, loved Shakespeare. And he passed that love on to a lot of us. And... We got, we got some acclaim for the shows that we would do, and we would travel around the city and perform in different venues. And the same time in the summer, I used to write plays for my friends and I to do in one of my friends' backyard. And that was like my Cowboys and Indians or whatever. We're going we're gonna to do this show. And it was cool for a couple of weeks because my friends would kind of be into it like a game. But after a while, they want to play something else. <laughs> we and I'm this. like, no. We're, we're in rehearsal. <laughs> we're in rehearsal. So that it's always been a part of, of, of my makeup, you know, from elementary school. I majored in college at shows in high school. Left college with a BFA in theater, went out to L.A. I was there for 20 years. And I've always done it. I've written a lot of screenplays, plays for the stage, and acted. Did you have the support of your family? Was it an artistic uh, sort of family life? I had the support of my family. I, um, I wouldn't call it an artistic family per se. I, I, they were exposed us to a lot. So in that sense, yes. I remember being maybe eight, going on a trip to New York, and we saw, I think, three Broadway shows in that trip. Mm. I remember seeing The Wiz and Bubbling Brown Sugar and, and something else. And I knew, I knew then, this is what I'm going to do. I think my parents always knew that's all I've done they were a little concerned when it came to college and now you're going to major in this and you know can you, can you major in something else and minor in this and we went back and forth with that but I didn't uh, you know English I thought I minored in English I guess I, that would, I would yeah my dad wanted me to double major but I wasn't going to do that in something more practical something more practical my mom was a lifetime <laughs> educator <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, but I was very adamant. And then when I went to L.A., because I did work, and that was the thing, that I worked kind of like a dog chasing his tail. I worked enough to know that I, I could work. Mm-hmm. And I, I, was, I did some pretty big things, but never the big thing that could get the momentum going to the point where I didn't need to have some other job or some other hustle or some other. So it was a constant, like, um, okay, it's the next gig. The next one is about to be the one. And so in that period, yeah, they would be worried about me or my dad knew that I was a writer also. 
And this is something I was thinking about recently because he thought that I should focus on one thing, uh, acting or directing or writing. And I still don't know if, if that would have been the right thing to do. I remember when I first got there, I had a, an introduction to Debbie Allen, who at that time was doing Different World. She also went to Howard, where I went to school. So did Felicia Rashad. Oh, they okay. went to Howard. So the choreographer who had uh, directed her in fame on Broadway was one of my dance teachers at school. So I had this package prepared for her and met her and gave it to her and was offered um, extra work on Different World immediately, like within the first month of getting in L.A. But my ego was such that I, extra work, that never crossed my mind. These are things that in hindsight I realized were mistakes. Wait, and how, so how old would you have been at this point? This was 20, 21. Yeah, the 20-year-old version. And I was like, I'm going to be a millionaire in five years. There was no question in my mind about that. And so instead of accepting happily this offer, because I had met her at this point. She'd called me on my birthday. She was very open. We had connected. And she'd offered me this extra work. And so my response was to write a role for myself, which I did. Onto Different, different world. world. Which they ended up, I won't say they took my idea, but a very similar role appeared in the next season oh my word. on Different World. And so that was like one of my first lessons in, in Hollywood. I was like, now here I could have gone and... Because I ended up doing some extra work anyway, several years later, and then got my SAG card and built up like that. I thought I could have cut out five years if I'd have just come out here and done that. And done the work. Instead of just, well, I've got an idea, and let me write that. And then sure enough, they liked it, and it, but it wasn't me that they cast them. <laughs> but I say that to say that I knew and still do. A lot of my friends from school, for example, are quite successful financially, uh, very visible actors. And so when I would hear from people the difficulty or it, you know, it's not lucrative and the things that you hear as an artist, I knew, I was like, oh, but I have too many friends that are either on a show or doing movies or kicking it who um, were my peers. We're not in any different league. Mm -hmm. So I knew that it was not something that was unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And so I never had that. And that's part of why I think what kept me there for so long, because I knew that this was quite possible, and I felt that I was talented enough to do it. What maybe I wasn't talented enough at was playing the game, um, networking and, and the, the business aspect of the show, thinking casting directors when, when they cast you, I, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. I kind of, mm -hmm. I, I dropped the ball on that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, maintaining the relationships, being seen at the parties. But when it came to the work, you know, I, I didn't have any fear of that I couldn't that I couldn't work. It's just I didn't quite know the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so fast forward, you're there 20 years, is that 20 right? 20 years, yeah. And then what, um, did it get too exhausting? What was the impetus? For no, actually the impetus was simply that my, my parents needed help. Mm. My Mother was, is a breast cancer survivor. My father had gotten, had had several strokes, and my mom was kind of his caregiver. And so when she got sick, she needed, she needed some help. And my, even though my brother lives here, I've been away for a long time. 
and I kind of felt, okay, let me, I'm going to need to go. My brother has four kids. I had one. And so I was just at a time in my life where I could come back and help. And I thought it would be I'd come home, help out for a little while, and be back in L.A. It was not a question. And then my father passed, and I found that things were going actually very well for me here. So I've stayed. I may go back to L.A. or New York in a couple of years when my son you know, goes off to college. But I don't have the same, like, I've got to get back to L.A. that I thought I would have. Mm-hmm. Things are going well here. And then as a writer... It's always been my dream to, you know, to have some control over the, over my content and not just be kind of hat in hand looking for a job. Mm-hmm. Because then that creates problems for you as an actor because then you take anything. And that's what that's what started to happen in LA. I will say that. That was frustrating. I got tired of playing drug dealers and gangbangers and and thugs and um kind of being not always, but often cast in a stereotypical way, which is not what I came out to to do. Even I even had um, agents and casting directors to tell me that I should take all the Shakespeare off my resume, for example. Don't include any of the training that you've had because, you know, L.A. is about personality. We want real people. As if somehow my being... What an, does that even isn't mean? that crazy? As if being an actor somehow makes me not a real person. Ironic is that LA is about real people. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But they didn't want training emphasized. They didn't want to know about the classical theater that I'd done. You know, and I'll I'll tell you this story. This was um, this was right before I stopped acting for a while because my son had been born, and you know his mother wanted to make sure that there was some up and down is the hardest part. So I worked, but I may work six months straight, and then the next six months. You know, looking for a gig. So I was kind of being pushed towards teaching. And I had been cast in a small role in Training Day, which shot the same time that I was supposed to, I'd been accepted to this teaching fellowship program. And so I went up to uh, my wardrobe fitting and stuff like that. And I'd already been cast. And there was a producer in the room. And I have like two tattoos. And so the producer said to me, um, well, those aren't gang tattoos. I said, well, no, because I'm not a gangster. But you can paint anything on me that you want to. I can play anything that you want me to. Uh-huh. But, but something about it, it just, it, left, it just didn't sit right with me. I said, first of all, he doesn't know anything about gangbangers. He's so far removed from that. That's not a part of his reality. Right. And he's going to tell me I'm not gang and I'm not, but I'm not black enough. I'm not yeah. down enough. Yeah. And it just... And I just remember that night, I had to be on set like six in the morning. And of course, I was working with Denzel Washington, and this is a great opportunity, and director. But I also thought, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of gangbanger number whatever, bouncing around in the low rider with a couple of stupid lines. And now I'm going to be told by this producer that my tattoos aren't gang enough. Because all I could think was, within, go down and get you a gangbanger. <laughs> Hire some gangbangers. Go, go hire some. He, he was expecting gangbangers to show up at the casting call. Anyway, That's right. right. And they don't have any Shakespeare on their resume. That's right. Yeah. You don't have to worry about that. Hire them. them. That oh my God. And, that's, and that's it. And then I decided that morning, and I don't know that I was blackballed for that. I don't know. But I certainly know that it was not a popular decision. My agent was very upset. My family, friends, nobody could understand. And maybe it was a mistake. But at that time, I just felt like, you know what? 
I'll go and teach for a while and I will, I'm going to work on my terms. I'm not going to just be, but that's the thing that happens when you're out there, you need the job. And so you find yourself in a room with hundreds of actors and we're all competing to say, you know, these couple little bullshit lines. Yeah. And then it kind of hits you like, what am I doing? This is, you know, I'd rather drive a hundred miles and do Othello for gas money, which I did, than than to sell my soul and do this. Yeah, you to know. sit and listen to this producer tell yeah. me my tattoos yeah. were the wrong tattoos yeah. to have. So it's oftentimes in the studio we have, um, or we have in the past, we've had some women writers who find themselves either pigeonholed in some kind of mm-hmm. genre of fiction that, um, you know, it's called chick lit, where right. they write a domestic story um, and then it gets shelved in a certain place at the stores right. and it appeal it gets sold and packaged in a certain way to appeal to this one type of reader. But a man writes the same story and it's mm. literary fiction. It doesn't get the domestic right. or the, the you know, chick lit. Even if it's a man writing a woman's perspective, same exact kind of right. story. And so That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, in listening to your experience, um, trying to weigh like I need the book deal. Right. I need the job, you know, I got to do the work. That's right. But you're up against so much. You have to decide, you know, you, you, you got to make those trades. Um, and it sounds like it, from the other uh, guests that we've had in the studio that a lot of it comes to comes down to maturity. Mm. And I wonder if, you know, the young guys out there who are trying to make a go at it, if they get enough success early on, they stop asking those questions. Because they don't have to make those decisions. They just right. make the money and... And run. And then we don't... But then we don't change the system. Right. I don't I know. I think that's true. And I think that's true in a lot of ways with with film in general. Uh, the theater. You know, there's a lot of... As a, as a writer, you are seen as this type of writer. Or, mm-hmm. the, or that. You, either you write, you know, comedy or drama. Or like you said, chick lit or or horror, whatever your genre is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's so difficult to to get published or produced, period, that if you go with that and then they, they pigeonhole you, well, I may be pigeonholed, but I'm working. Right, yeah. Or, you know, as an actor, I may be stereotyped or, you know, being cast based on whatever, but I'm working. Mm-hmm. And so that does become, and that's what you want, you, you, you want to work. But you also want to have some authenticity in what you're what you're creating, mm-hmm. and and that's difficult. That balance is very difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's not. I don't think there's easy answers. No. Um, I wonder if this is a follow up. The when I was doing research for um, today's show, I was I fell into this August Wilson black hole where I mean, there's so much written about um, his work and. Um, I I started reading into that um, reading about that debate in '97 mm-hmm. between August Wilson and um, Robert Brustein. Am I saying his last name? I think so. About the Black Theater. Yeah. Yes. And the the whole question was, I get, he was getting pushback, um, sort of because the sort of prevailing attitudes about um, Black Theater was like just write good good theater. Why does it have to be Black Theater? Right. And August Wilson was saying. You know, um, of the 65 theaters belonging to the League of Regional Theaters, only one was a black theater. So the score is 1 to 64. When when the score gets even out, maybe we can start talking about it. But now it's right. it's 
it's not. And we still have to um, ensure that there are places for this, for this experience to be had and made, this art to be created yes. that either, you know, isn't up against the, the sort of, you know, white institution um, and, and also not having to appeal to the white audience. You know, that, that right. that's not a burden that, that, that goes away because I, I just get to write my art. Right. Um, that was 97. It's hard to believe that we're 20 years away from that. What, where do you think we are now? Well, it's, it's interesting because even at the time of that debate, mm-hmm. there was a lot of controversy because even though August Wilson was championing black theaters, which was good, none of his work was first run performed at black theaters. I mean, August Wilson was the thing that about him that is why he's become historic, why he has a theater named after him on Broadway mm-hmm. is because his plays were being done at Yale Repertory, right. at on Broadway, in those same white institutions that he was saying, we need to be supporting black institutions. But his plays weren't being produced in black institutions. I mean, when they would go to the the repertory circuit and what have you, then, yes, you would have black theaters that would produce mm-hmm. the work. Mm-hmm. But the initial success of, of all of his plays were in the kinds of theaters that the majority of your audience is not going to be black. And so he kind of got some flack for that because you... It, if you're saying that, then why are you continuing to make deals you're not walking the walk. on the great white way? You're not out here uh, selling your wares to the local black theater. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of that that controversy. Again, how do you balance the my art with the commerce? And of course, I'm not going to turn down the Broadway offers. But if the audience that you're really writing for is not the audience that's coming to the theater, then again, what you have is kind of the, the white audience often getting their uh, street cred authenticated because now they've experienced this August Wilson play and right. it's so real. Right. And so now we understand. And so I think, and, and <laughs> that's, that's one show. you know, yeah, <laughs> I get, I you, get you. I know the black experience. I understand it. I love August Wilson. I've got, I've got black friends. You know, this is the, it's that, right, that mentality. Is the, is, and so that's why it was difficult for him but I respect him tremendously for what he did and for what he said. I think we still have that problem today. You know, for example, with the, with the Fences movie. Originally, Paramount was supposed to make that more than 20 years ago because Eddie Murphy had the rights. And the reason it didn't get made is because August Wilson insisted on a black director. He would not let it be done without a black director. And at the time, even Eddie Murphy wouldn't stand up for that. He was like, well, we're going to get the best director, but it may or may not be a black director. August Wilson was like, you don't understand. I will not allow it to be done without this. And so again... And they couldn't, they couldn't find one? They couldn't find one for the Well, draft. that's what I think is... That's the interesting statement about Hollywood. That clearly there were black directors, even at that time, yeah. that were working. And I remember watching the Arsenio Hall show. Uh, I remember this so clearly. And James Earl Jones was a guest because they, I guess, had just done Coming to America, maybe. He was a guest. And I remember him looking into the camera and asking Eddie Murphy, you know, to to please 
cast him and make make this happen, make this a reality. As a sort of tongue in cheek kind of thing, because he was on the yes. talk show. But he but he but was a hundred percent serious. Yeah, now okay. he was uh-huh. serious, uh-huh. and because I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm, we live in a world where James Earl Jones has to ask Eddie Murphy for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you're James Earl Jones. <laughs> this is Eddie and, Murphy and on Arsenio Hall, no right. less, right? But uh, but I understand it because. It took all those years for it to happen. And and so that's an example of where, yes, he, he was trying to walk the walk, August Wilson at that time. No, this is what I, you know, but you, ha- you see that same thing with, say, Spielberg directing Color Purple and Amistad. A lot of flack about that, yet great movies. I mean, I love the Color Purple. I love Amistad. And, and I remember Debbie Allen when she was producing Amistad. It was, I was trying to get up for Amistad. So, because there was a, that was a story I've known about since college that I wanted to do. And Spielberg would not see any American black actors for, for any of the uh, roles on, on the ship. Only actors from Africa. And at first, I remember being so upset by that and mm-hmm. thinking, that's ridiculous. But I have to say, when I saw the movie, I understood it because as, as, as much as you know, we we're from Africa. There is a difference between American-born blacks who've been here, whose family has been here for generations, and blacks who are from Africa. And I understood it more then. But at the time, I didn't as an actor. I didn't understand that. You know, I can play anything, but I do get why he did that, and just like I get why August Wilson, perhaps at the expense of having his own work made into film stood so firmly on that but it's a it's a hard call and and like I remember Spike Lee giving Debbie Allen so much grief over hiring Spielberg but she was like well first of all he can get it done they may Hollywood may not green light everybody to do this but they're going to let him do it and that's what's more important that a black director gets to do this or that the story gets out there and that's the balance that we're constantly, I think, dealing with. The story getting out there or, or who's the audience that's, that's going to see it. Mm-hmm. And how do we kind of seed black theaters more? And like here, here in Houston, the ensemble is great. But they can only afford a few equity contracts a year. They're not an equity house. Mm-hmm. And so there and now, uh, say there are things, there's been... Uh, Personnel changes over at the alley, and the alley is making this conscious choice to kind of try to expand their horizons. And a lot of that is uh, kind of going over to the ensemble actors, and that's that's what I'm seeing. There's a lot of that. Uh And so then as an actor who feels my artistic home is the ensemble, and I want to continue to work there because they've given me a chance to do, I mean, the roles I've done since I've been here, Martin Luther King, for example, and several real people are the kinds of that's not like doing gangbanger number three or you know there's something with some substance and yeah. so i love them for Food that calls that uh, soul feeding your soul work that feeds exactly your soul. yeah exactly but at the same time you gotta you gotta feed your pocketbook and so yeah. if i can go over to the this theater and not only now now ensemble will pay an equity wage but the level the tier contract is different uh, I'm about to do Twelfth Night at the Alley. I'll make more for that 
than I did for both shows I did at the ensemble combined last year and then some. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you want to feed your soul, but then how do I, to advance my career and get, and the, and the alley will, does a lot of August Wilson's work and does a lot of black shows. There's an all black cast show at the, at the alley this year. And so I'm wondering about that. How do, do I as an actor go over here and work and not continue to, you know, be there for my my black theater, but if my black theater can't afford to pay yeah. the same, how how do you how do you balance that out? And I think that's that's the artist struggle, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like a character in an August Wilson play. There's no hero or villain. Right. We're all a little of that's right. Everything. Right? That's right. And the decisions are in as many shades of gray. Yeah. They're not black and white either. No, it's true, which I think is the key of, of, of good writing. I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of connection, say, with my style is definitely influenced by August Wilson and, and Shakespeare. And I see them very similarly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way to, I approach it as an actor is similar, getting your mouth around all the language and um, letting it speak for itself. Speaking of, before we talk about your writing, do you mind doing a, a dramatic reading for us? Sure. I can do a little of that. You want to uh, just give us a just a little the backdrop to this. A scene. little setup, yeah. okay. Well, this is the scene from Fences, and there's main conflict between father and son. Troy being the father, Corey is the son. Troy was an athlete in the Negro baseball leagues, but never got a chance to go to the pros. He came before Jackie Robinson integrated the pros, and he has some bitterness about that. And so now that his son is interested in football, although a different sport, his fear is the same, that this is not going to be successful for you. You want to work at the A&P, you want to get your degree, you want to find a good steady job. And so that friction between them kind of comes to a head. And this scene is the son trying to ask the father um, why he's always so hard on him. And, but it kind of comes out of that, the father really trying to protect the son, but in some ways hurting him more than he's helping him. Can I ask you a question? What the hell you want to ask me? Mr. Stawicki, the one you got the questions for. How come you ain't never liked me? Liked you? Who the hell say I got to like you? What law is there say I got to like you? I want to stand up in my face ask a damn fool-ass question like that, talking about liking somebody. Come here, boy, when I talk to you. Straighten up, goddammit. I asked you a question. What law is there say I got to like you? None. Well, all right then. Don't you eat every day? Answer me when I talk to you. Don't you eat every day? Yeah. Nigga, as long as you in my house, you put the sir on the end of that when you talk to me. Yes, sir. You eat every day. Yes, sir. Got a roof over your head? Yes, sir. Get clothes on your back? Yes, sir. Why you think that is? Because of you. <laughs> oh, hell, I know it's because of me. But why do you think that is? Because you like me? Like you. I go out here every morning, bust my butt, putting up with them crackers every day because I like you. You about the biggest fool I ever saw. It's my job. It's my responsibility. You understand that? 
a man got to take care of his family. You live in my house, sleep your behind on my bedclothes, fill your belly up with my food, because you're my son. You're my flesh and blood. Not because I like you. Because it's my duty to take care of you. I owe a responsibility to you. Let's get this straight right here. Before I go along any further, I ain't got to like you. Mr. Rand don't give me my money come payday because he likes me. He gives me because he owe me. I didn't give you everything I had to give you. I gave you your life. Me and your mama worked that out between us. And liking your black ass wasn't part of the bargain. Don't you try and go through life worrying about if somebody like you or not. You best be making sure they doing right by you. You understand what I'm saying, boy? Yes, sir. Then get the hell out of my face and get on down to that A&P. Ah. <laughs> rich, rich. Yes. Did I sound scared enough for you? I think it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> advice that you come to when you inhabit a monologue like that is there is there something that sticks with you yes i mean um you got to know what you're talking about that that's the first thing you, you know once you get where you're going um I, I remember being given some advice in college that has one of many pieces of advice that stuck with me but i used to have a professor who would say in a monologue you want to treat it like you're in the woods and the woods are on fire. So if you had to get out of the woods, you're not gonna run around every tree. You're gonna run to get out of the woods. And so you can't say with August Wilson, say with Shakespeare, you don't have time to embellish every moment and every word because then the play will be eight hours long. And you'll be on fire. Right, <laughs> you'll be on fire. Yeah. So you've got to get through it so I think keeping, you got to keep your eyes on the prize, so mm -hmm. to speak. This is where I'm going. My goal is to get out of these burning woods to the house. So the, the most important thing is the house. And then how I get there is just the route I'm taking. But my goal is to get to the house. And so with something, with monologues and even with scenes, you got to find out where, where is that we're going so you don't get lost on the way. You know? It sounds like writing. I, I think it is very similar. Yeah. That's right. Is that, I, I mean, right. do you come to the table then, to the page with the same sort of objective? I do. Objective? I do. And, and then something else with writing, uh, when I, in UCLA, I took several screenwriting classes and directing classes. And one of the tidbits there that has always stuck with me, with screenwriting specifically, although on the stage it's similar, but more so in, in movies, is to come into the scene at the last possible moment and get out at the first possible moment. And so I think with acting, it's the same. You, where, where am I emotionally that I'm, you know, what is the highest stake? Where are we now? And then where are we when, when, when it's done? And what has been accomplished in that? So yeah, when I write, I will um, sometimes write on cards. That's what August Wilson used to do, just cards and shuffle them up in different order oh, and it. see if the scenes play. Mm -hmm. I'm going to post them all over the walls. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I work with cards. Sometimes within a scene, I'll know, okay, this is what needs to happen. How do we get there? What's the quickest way? 
And then again, with film, which is different, say, than the stage, you're writing in, in pictures and you're writing to show. Show, don't tell. Right. Yeah. You have more leisure on the stage to tell. But when you're when you're showing, you've got to think of a way to put all that, like, say, if I was going to take a say something like Fences or another August Wilson play and make it into a screenplay, you might not have all those long monologues. You might, but you might want to try to find a way to, what can we show with a picture? You know, like, for example, with the, with the film of Fences, I thought it would have benefited from flashbacks on all of Troy's stories. When you're talking about his childhood, talking about his father, talking about how he walked up, we should have seen that. As opposed to just everything being in the in the house, him telling the story, there were, I think there were lots of chances to open it up that he didn't he didn't take advantage of, like flashbacks, like that the medium of film allows you. exactly. Yeah, that's the whole purpose of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, and if I if I have a way cinematically to suggest death, then I should use that the the tricks of the cinema. I can put rain on the stage. I mean, but, you, you know, you want to use the tricks of the cinema. And I think writing is the same. The transitions, for example, from scene to scene. How do you, every scene can't end with a blackout. So how do we get from that scene to this scene so that it flows? And I think it's the same thing with the stage. I don't think every scene should have to end with the curtains being drawn and being open and now it's the next scene. How do we flow into that? Naturally, that tells the story, gets us where we want to go, but yet gives you the characters and gives you all that meat without you getting lost in, in the fire, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Catching fire. Right. This is a, this is a question from, from our good friend in front of the podcast, Mark Doster, who, um, who wrote in and wanted me to ask you this question. So, yes. um, Sam Shepard said, plays don't begin with ideas. Instead, ideas emerge from plays. And now that you're, you know, um, I know you've got a project going now and I guess he, you know, he wanted to know, are there particular plays that, ha- or, I'm sorry, particular ideas that have emerged from uh, your current work in progress that? Yes. You can talk about. <laughs> yes, you know, and it's interesting because I do think you you have an idea in the beginning as a writer. There's something that you want to convey. That's why you're writing. But then, yes, you as you're writing, hopefully you are going to create something that's going to spark ideas in the audience. And as you're writing it, ideas may come more clearly to you. Um, so yes, there. What I'm doing now is I'm I'm trying to adapt a book, classic novel, to screen form, and so the ideas are set forth in the in the book. But how I think it is relevant to today, because it's a 50 year old book, how it's relevant to today and why it's important. I didn't even realize as much when I started writing it as I as I've seen now, and and then what I also thought is that I, I I can't be a dictator of thought. So no matter what you write, you don't know how people are going to perceive it. Everybody interprets things differently, receives things differently, and the way that they see it might be even more expansive than what you thought when you wrote it. And so I always try to write and keep that in mind, keep that space, that room for a different interpretation other than mine or a different idea other than mine. So I think you do have to have an idea in mind to write the play, but that you can't control what ideas are sparked as a result of your work. And you should definitely work 
toward the goal of sparking ideas and others to making that change. I mean, you can't, you can't change the world. I think who it was that said, um, what is it? People. I can't think of what it is now. The quote I'm trying to think of, but it has to do with not, you can't change the world. That's what it is. People can't change the world. They can just change people mm. and people together can make a change. And I think that's what you in the theater. And that's what it's all about is that what is it that I'm trying to communicate that hopefully can be the catalyst for somebody to go out and try to do something about whatever it is, whatever the problem, whatever the idea is. Mm. I think that is the goal. I still think that storytelling is, is one of the most important things we have in, in society. I think it goes back to you know, the griot in Africa being very revered. and But oftentimes, I think in the modern world, in the Western world, uh, we, we, we kind of put that on the bottom of the totem pole. I mean, like acting and writing and what have you is, is not seen as a prestigious job unless you're rich and famous. Then everything the was, money lends is fine. Credibility yeah. Or, yeah, prestige, but d- yeah. just doing what it is that you do, that doesn't mean, you know, that's nothing. And so it is. And so that goes back to how do you become commercial and stay true to your artistic vision? Like with, with this book, and I think I've done a good job in terms of editing it down, but still it feels like, okay, it's too much talking. Mm. And yet I like talking. I like dialogue. I like to play things that there's a lot of talking. But you have to be aware of your medium and of your audience. And if, you, if you're coming in over an hour and a half, you're going to lose people. And it's the same in the theater. I mean, I, I, a play that I think it, it could be, as August Wilson's plays are, as Shakespeare's plays are, three hours long plus. But not everybody's going to sit through that. Right. And so how do you, how, and finding that balance of getting out your ideas the way you want with room for people to come up with their own and yet be engaged and entertained throughout. Mm-hmm. You know, that, mm-hmm. it's, such a, it's such a balancing act. And it's like a puzzle. This is what I've discovered also with writing. It's really like a puzzle. I like the challenge of figuring out how is this going to work? How does this piece fit with this piece? Laying your cards out. Yeah. yeah. How can I make this fit together? Them. And then those surprises happen. Right. You know, things come up that's like, I never thought of that. Right. You know, that's it. Yeah. You know, that, I couldn't have planned that. It just has to come. Have, uh, we have one last request of you. Yes. We like to do a, a thing at the end of our episodes called Books for What Ails Ya. Mm. And we do it kind of speedy, so s- sort of speed round, just okay. quick responses. Foodie, you have the questions there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. What's the book or play you turn to when you're in a creative funk? A book, I would say, uh, would be Beloved. Toni Morrison's Beloved. That's one of my favorite books and films and yet so many of my friends can't get through it don't understand why I like it but to me talking about problem solving 
to me, Toni Morrison, you, you, there's going to be periods where you don't know what's going on and you have to just continue Power to read. Through. Yeah. And okay. I, I like, I like films that are the same way. I don't always want to be able to sit back and say, which I can do so many times now with a movie. I can tell you in the first five minutes, what's going to happen. You know exactly what's going to happen to the characters, how it's going to, you know. And so I love stuff that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so we, when I'm in a creative funk, Beloved is a go-to for me because of the way the story is structured and the fact that it is a story about, you know, slavery, just post-slavery, but it's also, it's a ghost story. Mm-hmm. And and her combination of that, to, to, to me, it elevated it beyond just a, a story about slavery. Uh, or or the results, the her dealing with the lasting effects of slavery being this ghost that haunts us, to me is is just the most brilliant metaphor. It's, so it's something that I always go back to. Okay, how did she do that? How did we? How did she keep me engaged when I didn't know what was going on and where I was, just through the power of her language and the storytelling? So that's one that I would go to. What's an overlooked film you'd like to recommend to the actor who hasn't seen it yet? Well, I would mention Beloved also as an overlooked film because uh, it made no money. Um, again, hard for people to sit through. That would be one. Another one for an actor specifically, I think, would be a soldier's story that I mentioned before also. Based on a play, soldier's play. But not only will you, as as an actor... And I say the actor as opposed to an actress, even though now it's not politically correct to differentiate actor, actress, we're all actors. But specific, just for actors as men, that play, because you see so many different characters, you'll see a lot of actors that you are familiar with that got their start in that movie. And it's, it deals with history and discrimination and so much in in the country but it never it never preaches it's all contained within the story and it goes in a direction that you don't expect there's been a a murder on the an army base if you don't know what it's about and during world war ii when armed forces are still segregated and blacks are not really allowed to fight even those that are in in wartime are more there for menial tasks. Mm-hmm. And so there's a murder on the base, a black sergeant is killed. And so the assumption is that it was the Klan or some white people that killed him because they don't like to see blacks in uniform. You know, there was a there was a huge spike in lynchings after both World War One and World War Two. You know, when we saw in World War Two that German prisoners of war were treated better than the black soldiers. And so this story is about that, but then you find out that it's not anything that you're expecting. It's not about the Klan. It's not about the, what the white man did. It's about what, what we do to each other. And I think that's one thing, say, with August Wilson that is so great, is that even though a lot of his plays are kind of, you know, they're set throughout history, and the man is a constant presence, but they're not really about that. They're really about what we do to each other. And so I would say, yeah, Beloved and Soldier's Play would be two that I would suggest. What's your favorite place to write in Houston? Do you have a favorite haunt? No, you know, I'm a home writer. 
Okay. I'm I'm more of a home writer. You're a rare breed. I know. You, I, don't, you don't get caught up in like doing the laundry and the dishes and every last thing you could do to avoid writing. Well, you know, done, right? I I certainly do. <laughs> and like for example, that's why this time this summer has been so good because you know my son has been gone for vacation and I've had I've had the time. When school starts back, I won't be able to do it as as much. Um, but I've always been. I'm not a I'm not a a coffee shop writer. This is something that you mentioned, Mark Doster. You know, he and I are friends, and he's he is a regular coffee shop haunter. He goes to the same place all the time, same time. I'm not like that. I I need to be in my room where I can stop and read out loud and talk to myself and maybe act stuff out. And does this work? And I'm a very home. Now I would say I like the water very much so i haven't done that much here in houston but i used to go to the beach when oh, i lived in okay. la and i would write by the beach because i love the sound of the waves and that's very calming so if i had to choose a place it would be the beach would be my, my spot or home how about a uh, favorite play to teach high schoolers the first thing that came to my mind was is equus and maybe because it's something that I did in high school. You did Equus in high school? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I know it's... You did Shakespeare in fifth grade I know, and Equus, Equus in high, in high school. school. And it's heavy. It's yeah. heavy. Very heavy. And so that's why I say maybe it's not... That's the first thing that came to my mind, okay. though. Because Alan is high school age, the, the, the lead mm-hmm, character. Mm-hmm. And him, you know, the whole relationship between he and, and the therapist... And even though most, hopefully, most uh, school kids aren't going blinding horses, but I do think that there is a certain there's a certain valve that that where steam needs to be released in young people before they get violent or act out. And I think the things that he struggles with in terms of insecurity and identity and what's been the baggage put on him by his parents, which is what has resulted in this abnormal fixation on horses, uh, the re- substitution of religion, and his his discomfort with girls. You know, all of those things are what high school students have to deal with all the time, and so I think the the dramatic you know action in this play, which as shocking as it is might be just far enough removed from their everyday reality that they wouldn't see it as something that they would do. But what's underneath the acting out might be something that they can understand and have a way to address without dealing with their own personal issues. You know, something that's outside of them that seems removed from their world, but yet deals with stuff that we all deal with all the time. And that, that's why I would say Equus. Well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. Such a pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. What did you think about James Earl Jones's version of Troy I wish I would have seen the whole thing live. I haven't. I've only seen clips. But I know that it was written for James Earl Jones. Oh. It was written for James Earl Jones. Mm-hmm. And because after Ma Rainey. Oh, wow. Yeah. After Ma Rainey, there was the 
the controversy and the criticism that that he d- hadn't formally structured his story in the way that the, the, the demands of the theater. You know, it was not Ma Rainey is not the lead of the of Ma Rainey, even though it's called Ma Rainey. It's not really about Ma Rainey. It's more about the band members. Yeah. And is it Ma Rainey's story? Is it Levy's story? Is it you know? And it doesn't. It kind of ambles along for a long time. You know, it's not like going plot point to plot point. So he got a lot of criticism for that. So he wanted to show with Fences that he could write a traditional three acts. Boom! Uh-huh. With the, this is your hero. This is your, the what? Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Kind of a la Death of a Salesman, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And so he wanted to write a great role for James Earl Jones, who at that time would not read it. It took like two years before James Earl Jones would, because he was kind of an unknown at the time, you know. And finally, he read it, and they worked on it. And and so knowing that it was written for him, then I could kind of hear his voice, even when I'm reading it and studying it, and imagine, you know, his power. Yeah. That's that's what that's what I think James Earl Jones, the power. And James Earl Jones is what we call a wet actor. He, he's unafraid to cry. Cry and snot <laughs> and everything. He's wet. Spit. <laughs> so Viola Davis is a wet Viola actress. Viola Davis is a wet actress. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I I can be a wet actor. I don't get too snotty. I try to, I try to <laughs> not get too snotty, and no spitting. But James will get in the emotion, and if you're on the front row, you might have to, you know, he, he's going he's gonna, he's gonna to come at you with We're some water. Or something. He's going to come at you with some water. But um, so it, yes, it, I think in my mind that's Troy. That power, that size wise, as well as his voice and his power. And when I was in uh, college, my last year of college, I was had an audition at a theater in D.C. for Corey to play in Fences. And they had a relationship with Howard University, this theater did. And so they wanted to bring students in. I had been cast, did not know that I was cast. I found out later from my university that they decided, because I was a senior, they wanted to go with somebody who was going to be at the school the next year. So they never told me that I was cast and they gave it to an underclassman. Because, because they were going to produce another of the cycle next year? No, because they wanted the actor from Howard that was going to be at the theater to still be at the university when the show was running and I was graduating. Oh, oh, oh. So even though I had been cast, they didn't tell me that I had been cast. Uh-huh. I only found out because I ran to the director in Georgetown one day and he's like, uh, what happened to you? I said, what do you mean what happened to me? So that's when I found out. I say that because in that production, Yafet Koto played Troy. Familiar with Yafet no. Koto? Mm-mm. He's dead now. He was an actor and a big in the 70s and 80s uh, and like the original Alien and, you know, oh, very, yeah. very oh, big yeah, yeah, black yeah. actor. Kind of lanky Yeah, guy. well, Yeah, thick in his, older, in his later oh, years. Yeah. So. But yes, very big, very powerful. And that's that's Troy to me. Whether it's Yafet yeah. Koto, James Earl Jones, I know right. has that same thing. That big power, because I think he's a larger than life character. Yeah, I mean he's idea. he's a he's a mythic character, mm-hmm. and that's why the battle of against death. These things are so important because he's he's not just a garbage man. And if you shoot it as just a domestic story about a garbage man and his infidelity against his wife, it's not the same. You miss some power of that. to me. Sure. Yeah. Right. This is, again, this is like 
just an associative question, but what was your interpretation of Gabriel then? Is it atypical? Was it atypical? Or was I was told that it was. And uh, that's that's one thing I try to do. That's, you know, I try to put a, my own stamp, not, not just to be different, but to try to find some truth. And with Gabriel, um, I heard a lot that it had, nobody had seen it done that way because my interpretation was actually based on a student mm-hmm. um, who was in special ed. Mm-hmm. And he was very, um, like very fast in his way of talking constantly like, the, like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that mm-hmm. is Gabriel. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I've always seen it, you know, where he's kind of yeah. slow. And yeah. I was like, that's not, he's not, his brain damage is that he has this metal plate. And the way that I interpreted the role is that he's his mind is almost moving too fast for him to get it all out. Mm-hmm. You know, whether he's thinking about the biscuits or selling his stuff, or so he was. It was very like that, mm-hmm. very rapid delivery, um, very big energy. Yeah, yeah. And that's why the the having no trumpet at the end of the film just destroyed it for me because that's his whole identity that's Uh everything Uh that's his mission his mission in life his purpose is to open the gates so then when that time came and then he's unable he's not the one that does it to me it 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 sold the character short so i saw him as not not childlike um very energetic and and also somebody for example that had the potential to be frightening Mm. because i think that's that's an element that's often missed the fact that he's been arrested several times for disturbing the peace the kids make fun of him but they also they run from him you know when he starts going around the street barking and talking about the hellhounds and so i wanted there to be an element of danger i wanted there to be an element of you don't quite know what he's going to do yeah possessing of something even maybe divine or yes. the way that you know we're taught to fear god yes like that. Yeah. and that you don't know how that's going to play out and not that he would ever be in, intentionally hurt anybody but he struck me as somebody that Ooh, that's y- interesting you have to watch him yeah and that's why troy is is protective of him and, ha- and has to watch him because if if you don't watch him you don't know what's going to happen yeah. you know yeah. and so i tried to keep that element of a little danger with him, you know. I wish we'd seen it. It was, I was very proud of it, you know. Yeah. I was very proud of it. And I, I loved playing Troy, too. And when at at the ensemble's production, I kind of, uh, because the two act, the actor that played Rose and I are frequent regulars at the ensemble, mm-hmm. they had all seen the show. We were over at U of H and kind of thought, okay, we got to, we might have an in. But Eileen Morris, the artistic director at the ensemble, thought that um, this actress and I were a little too young because we were the guest artists hired at this university. So we were older than the students, but Mm -hmm. she felt we were a little young for Troy and Rose. That's what she felt. And so when I first was cast as Gabriel, I was surprised. I was happy because I had never thought about playing Gabriel. So it it was great to discover it's like, oh, this is not at all what I've, what I've seen. Yeah, yeah. This is very different to me than what I've seen. Yeah. You know, and that's the, the, the treasure in all of August Wilson's work. Mm-hmm. I love him. I mean, I've read all the plays more than once, mm-hmm. and in every single one, there's that element of spirituality. There's that supernatural 
that you can't you can't take that out. Yeah. To me, that's the heart of it. it that's the heart. Yeah, you miss the mark. Yeah. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not-quite-starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary, and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. And by Audible. Stop angry tweeting in traffic. I'm looking at you, Ford Fusion, going west on I-10. Listen to us, and then when you're done, listen to an audiobook from Audible. The title we recommend is Rachel Cusk's exceptional trilogy, beginning with book one, Outline. Effing Shakespeare listeners get a free title with a new membership. Go to audibletrial.com slash Shakespeare and read more widely today. Also, effing Shakespeareans who live here in Houston, please mark your calendars to see Jason Carmichael and the incredible cast of Twelfth Night at the Alley Theater. Performances run now through October 28th. Go to alleytheater.org to get your tickets. When are you ever like me? That's what you should ask me. <laughs> when are you ever like me? Can I ask you a question, Kate? Uh, on this podcast, we ask hard questions of one another. <laughs> the, all the hard hitting. <laughs>